You're listening to the Lit Review Podcast. I'm Paige, and I'm joined by my amazing co-host, Monica Trinidad. How is your day going, Monica? Hey, Paige, and everybody out there listening. I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. Uh, I'm doing extremely well thinking about the episode we're about to drop and share with everybody. So yeah, I'm just really excited. Yes. I'm so excited to say this sentence. In today's episode, we sat down with none other than Angela Davis. Ah! Yes. Oh my gosh. Can you feel how happy I am? Like, uh, it was I wish everybody could see your face right now. It's your smile is so huge. <laughs> yeah, it's ginormous. Like, and I have that weird vein in my forehead right now. I'm so happy. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, that happened. It really did. It took us literally years to make that this happen. But um, we were really fortunate to be able to zoom in with none other than Professor Angela Davis. And I know we need an introduction, even though hopefully folks are familiar. Like, this isn't a surprise. Folks know about it. You may just be here just to listen to this interview with her. And if this is your first time here, welcome. But I, in this episode, actually do a longer bio when we're sitting down and talking with her. And so for now, I'm just going to briefly say, in case you aren't familiar with Angela, that she is a retired professor, a lifelong freedom fighter, an author and an intellectual, a former political prisoner. And her work, her ideas, her writings, her thinking, her struggle has been a pillar of the modern abolitionist movements that a lot of us are are engaged in. And she is still a part of those movements. I don't want to say that she's only in the past, right? She's very present and very active. And I also want to lift up, I think it's important because a lot of folks don't know this, she was never actually, she was never a member of the Black Panther Party. She was a member of the Communist Party, which is a big part of why we wanted her on here today to talk about this books, this book by Karl Marx, which is Capital. Now, Monica, I'm going to turn it over to you first because I have a lot of feelings, but how are you feeling about this episode? <laughs> Thanks, Paige. Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling good. This, you know, the book Angela Davis is talking about with us today is indeed Capital or Das Kapital in its original German language. Uh, it's a critique of political economy, volume one. The Process of Production of Capital, which is, uh, you know, written by philosopher and sociologist Karl Marx in 1867. So this book is at over a thousand pages long. It's extremely dense. It's full of jargon that I'm still trying to fully grasp and understand. But Angela considers it a must read for organizers. So, you know, we had to talk about it. Um, I, I really loved getting to witness how hyped Angela was to talk about this book. You know, she talks about how her parents were both teachers. Uh, she read this book in college, in grad school. She read it in German while she was studying abroad. And, and she's taught it multiple times. You know, she still picks it up every now and then and find something new to engage with that she hadn't noticed before. So she just really loves this book. She says in this episode that as long as capitalism continues to exist, reading Marx will be really helpful to us. So if you're an anti-capitalist or you're part of the labor movement or you've always just wanted to read Capital by Karl Marx, but you were extremely intimidated by it like I was, then this conversation is definitely for you. We didn't get to cover everything that's in this first volume, otherwise this episode would have been like several hours long, but Angela does a really good job at providing like super real and tangible and current examples of the terms and the theories that Marx is explaining to help us better understand, um, you know, this this volume, Um, but don't expect a summary of the book in this episode. You know, for our regular listeners who are used to that, you know, we always try and ask our guests to summarize the book for us, which is no small feat for many of the books that our guests talk about. But 
for this book in particular, Angela was just like, no, there's no way this book is summarizable. It's just not going to happen. So there's that. Sorry, not quite the spark notes for the for the movement for this episode, but it's definitely full of really helpful context, you know, that I'm still carrying with me today. Uh, and then one more thing, Paige, before I pass it back to you, but uh, one of my favorite parts of this episode is when Angela really gets into this, you know, quote unquote trick that is at the core of exploitation within this capitalist system. And she shares this distinction that we often fail to make between labor and labor power, where the workers told that they're being paid for their labor, but they're actually only being paid for their capacity to work, you know, for their labor power. And so it just unraveled so many threads for me, you know, one affirming why I hate capitalism so much and how it needs to go, but also just really breaking it down to like the the foundational pieces of what capitalism actually is. So I could go on forever, but what about you, Paige? I know you've been really wanting to talk about this book with Angela for a really long time. Yeah, I mean, this was one of two main texts that I always wanted to have talked about on this show, the other being Black Reconstruction. And one of the reasons is because I only have read some of this book, and it was back when I was, I think, 19 years old, and it was assigned to me for college, and I struggled through it. I didn't understand most of it, but what I did understand was really important for me, and it really helped me make sense of the world and my experiences in it, and it very much shaped my introductions to sort of radical politics and movement. And then I came to Chicago, and since then, my experiences of Marx and Marxists specifically have been like the white cis bros of the world um, who are just, yeah, those dudes. Like, I just like don't have patience or time or interest in, like, yeah. Um, and so that, I've, I haven't really revisited it since then, but I rem I've always, the things that I did learn from that book, I refer to and think about often, very, very often, and, and are very much a part of how I understand what we're trying to do and what has happened. And so it's very important to me. I want to understand this book, but it is a very difficult text. And anyone who tells you otherwise, they're, they're lying to you. Um, and so anyways, I also wanted to specifically talk about this book with Angela Davis because she's she's very important to me. That's a whole other conversation. But she's like, folks, this, yeah, I really, really, really... Um, have learned a lot from and look up to and have all of the like, oh my God, like she's that person for me forever and always. And so to get to the, be walked through this book and think about this book in the context of movement from Angela, who's someone whose ideas and values and politics and, and praxis I really respect was very helpful. Um, and so if you're coming at this from a place of maybe you've been assigned it in a class, maybe you're just struggling through it on your own and you just want that review of the helpful helping to under yourself understand these terms of commodities surplus value abstract value exploitation right it I think it is really helpful in those ways I will say I have more questions than when we started <laughs> after you know so it, it doesn't necessarily yeah it's, this book cannot be summarized and also there was this question that I was really insistent on asking because I expected her to say one thing on black capitalism and then she said the opposite and I was so thrilled. I'm still like, what? So that's a teaser. Wait till you get to that part. See what, how you feel, what you think. Um, and yeah. And so um, 
I'll, I, there's a lot that I could say that I think it was really rich and there's, I think it's very important as well, but I'm just going to highlight one specific quote that actually is pulling a little bit from the beginning of the interview and then the end, but I think they go together really neatly. And so Angela was saying that the book Capital was designed to encourage people to raise questions about an economic system that was still relatively young at the time, but was considered to be permanent. It was considered to be the only way to guarantee economic progress. One of the major contributions of Marx and Engels' analysis of capitalism is that it is a product of history. It's not a system that is permanent. If capitalism came into being through history, then it could also be replaced by something else through history. And I share that quote because I think it represents that, yes, this is a nerdy, academic, jargony conversation. Absolutely. And I love it. But I know I, I like I am that person. But it's also very practical. It's also rooted in its commitment to movement building and I think really charged with hope. And so I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. Here's episode 60, Marx's Capital with Angela. Angela, oh my God. I'm so nervous and excited. Angela freaking Davis. <laughs> You're listening to the Lit Review Podcast. We're your hosts, Paige May and Monica Trinidad. I think it's essential for people to learn together in order to be able to understand what we're up against. In sharing our ideas, we're stronger. Welcome to Chicago. This is home for most. This is the home of the wealthy making cameos. This is the house of the heartless, the home of the cold. Y'all, we are here today with the one and only Dr. Angela Davis. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm I'm well. Um, I'm very excited, not going to lie, and a little bit nervous. Um, but we have been dreaming of this conversation about this book with you specifically for years at this point and have so many questions. And it is a very, very large book. So we want to dive right in. Before we do that, I'm going to do my best at giving you, you know, a proper introduction. Um, you know, Angela Davis, for folks who don't know, radical queer black woman. She's a scholar, writer, activist, organizer, educator, and a former political prisoner, founding member of Critical Resistance, a longtime former member of the Communist Party, a political philosopher, a feminist, inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame, and also the 100 Most Influential People in 2020 by Time Magazine. Um, what else? I, I remember learning of you and how you were fired uh, from your professor, your teaching position for your membership in the Communist Party, and then in 1970 were internationally known and placed on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list and were incarcerated for, I believe, over a year facing three counts of the death penalty, all of which you were eventually acquitted of. And uh, I've come to know you through your work as an author of more than 10 books and hearing you speak here in Chicago, but also I know you have spoken all around the world and have inspired so many organizers and activists and artists across the globe who are part of our larger movements to end violence and the PIC and Western imperialism um, the world over. 
You're, I know you're, I believe you're still a current professor at the University of California, and we are just so lucky and grateful that you've chosen to take some time today to talk to us about this very large and rather intimidating book. So, Monica, I'm going to turn it over to you. <laughs> you know, I'm actually a retired professor at UC Congratulations. Santa Cruz, but Congratulations. I'm still teaching. I'm teaching this spring at UCLA, so I still teach, but... I'm Professor Emerita at UC Santa Cruz. Got it. Brilliant. Noted. Got it. So we start every episode asking our guests uh, who are all either community organizers or radical authors or activists uh, to share a little bit about who they are, what they do, and why they do what they do. Uh, but there's no doubt that those listening already know a lot about who you are and what you do. So the real question we want to get at here is why do you do what you do and what really moves you to do what you do on a daily basis? Um, and also feel free to add anything that we also might have missed in your introduction. Well, I think your introduction was pretty thorough. Thank you. Um, and uh, why do I do what I do? I, I, I love thinking and learning and teaching. I should point out that both my parents were teachers, uh, so I think I inherited that uh, desire for knowledge from them. And ever since I can remember, I've been interested in transformative ideas and radical activism. Uh, uh, um, one of the great gifts of growing up under conditions of legalized segregation um, in the South uh, was that I learned early on that the world needed to be changed. Uh, from um, the time I was, uh, you know, perhaps three or four years old. Uh, uh, so almost everything I've done over the course of my almost. Um, eight decades on this earth has been related to um, thinking about uh, examining, discovering, um, helping to forge with other strategies to bring about radical change in, in the world. And I think I'll end there. <laughs> of course, we could spend the entire podcast talking about that, but I'm going to try to be succinct. Uh, a quality I don't uh, necessarily have, but I will try. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think every question we're about to ask you could be an entire hour. Um, yeah, so that'll be the theme. I, I'm curious, can you tell us what led you to read this book, Marx's Capital? Um, do you remember how old you were, where you were, why you read it, and then how has the book influenced your life since then? Well, I have read Capital at various points in my life, but I guess I should begin by pointing out that um, when I was attending high school in New York, um, Elizabeth Irwin High School associated with the Little Red Schoolhouse, uh, we actually read the Communist Manifesto in our history class. Uh, and, and I'll never forget uh, how enlightening it was uh, to read this at uh, the age of 15. Uh, and I began to read Capital as a college student. I began to read it. Uh, and then I spent a great deal of time studying it when I was a graduate student. Uh, uh, that was when I read large sections of the book in the original German when I studied uh, in Frankfurt, Germany. Uh, and I... Um, 
I should point out that I did not approach uh, Capital in isolation from the other works. Uh, and I'm very happy that, that because I was studying philosophy, um, I was also concerned with reading the writings of the young Marx, uh, the, the philosopher Marx, uh, for example, the German ideology, and then the 1844 uh, economic and philosophical manuscripts. Um, that text was especially important to me because you're able to see how Marx later employed a philosophical framework to develop critiques of political econ economy. Perhaps I should say here a few words about uh, my mentor, Herbert Marcuse, uh, uh, who um, actually helped to kindle my interests um, in um, the philosophical tradition of German idealism, uh, which later led to my studying in Germany. Um, um, Marcuse wrote one of the first essays about the 1844 manuscripts. Um, and the 1844 manuscripts were not discovered and published until 1932. And Marcuse then wrote a paper that was called The Foundation of Historical Materialism. And I'll never forget that he, he wrote about the fact that, uh, that he had been seeking to figure out how to create a philosophical foundation for the critique of political economy that one sees later. Uh, and with the discovery of the 1844 economic and philosophical manuscripts, he realized that Marx himself had done that work. Uh, and um, he, he argued that philosophy was not something uh, that Marx engaged with as a young scholar, and then later moved on to study uh, the economy, to, to study political economy, or rather critiques of political economy. He pointed out that that philosophical foundation uh, was everywhere in his work, at all stages of his work. Uh, um, and also he pointed out uh, that, that there is a difference between philosophical and practical and revolutionary uh, approaches. Uh, uh, the capitalist system has to be overthrown as a result of the economic and political struggles of the working class, of the proletariat. But he argued that, that economics and politics have become the um, basis of the theory of, re of revolution as a result of a very particular kind of philosophical interpretation of, of, of uh, human existence and humanity. Yeah. So, so yeah, I um, I read Capital um, as I said at various moments of my life. I have taught uh, the text also at various times, and I continue to learn from it every time I pick it up again. I see something uh, that uh, did not necessarily strike me the first time I engaged with it. Hmm. Yeah, you know, from what I know about Karl Marx is that he wrote Capital, one, directed towards a working class audience, um, right, with the hope that 
by explaining their conditions and how their ascribed social positions got them you know, where they are, uh, in, in addition to describing the strengths and the weaknesses of the capitalist system, that you know, the working class would then organize and overthrow the system. But we also know that Marx took extremely long to write this book, this, these volumes, um, as he dealt with you know, poor health and financial hardships and um, also just being pulled into political activity, which we all know happens to us when we're called to the streets and called to respond to crises in our communities. Um, but can you say a little bit more about the material and the political contexts in which Marx wrote Capital? Like what, what was going on around him while he was writing this book? Yeah, um, and, and let's not forget that, that um, this was a collaborative undertaking uh, and that uh, Ingalls uh, also participated uh, in, in the process of writing. Um, but the first volume was the only volume of Capital published during Marx's lifetime. Ingalls uh, uh, published the second and third volume. And, and then... Um, there's actually a fourth volume, uh, which consists... What? I didn't know there was a fourth volume. <laughs> yeah. Were there supposed to be eight? Yeah, there is a fourth volume, and that fourth volume is a three-volume tome. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and it is called Theories of Surplus Value. Uh, and oh Marx gosh. himself uh, um, intended it to be the fourth volume of, of Capital, but of course... It was not published until um, uh, much later. Uh, so the, the first volume was published in 1867, and then Marx died in 1883. Uh, he was only 65 when he died. And so Engels published volume two in 1885 and volume three in 1894. And the fourth volume that was actually uh, put together by Karl Kautsky, um, uh, was published later. But I guess it's important to point out that uh, there was a political context, and that context was created by the revolutions of 1848 in Europe. Uh, and we should remember also that 1848 is the year uh, when the Communist Manifesto was published, uh, and that there were communist parties or communist, what they call communist working men's associations. We have to uh, be attentive to the uh, the the nature of the language uh, and the and and and, and the uh, uh, you know ways in which uh, the consciousness of gender had not yet emerged during that period. Uh, but capital was yes, I think you're absolutely right. Capital was designed to encourage people to raise questions about an economic system that was. Um, still relatively young at that time, but was considered to be uh, permanent. It was considered to be the only way to guarantee um, economic progress. Uh, uh, and, you know, um, there's a story that impressed me so much when I was a young activist. Uh, and that is that the a father of a very good friend of mine, uh, whose name was Franklin Alexander. He uh, is now deceased, uh, but he was an activist uh, in, um, well, in the Communist Party, but also in SNCC and a number of other organizations. His father, uh, whom we all call Alex, was also a member of the Communist Party. Uh, 
And when he joined the Communist Party, he did not know how to read. He learned how to read by reading Capital. That is how he became literate, because he wow. thought that it was his responsibility as a worker uh, to understand the functioning of the capitalist system. So that's uh, that's you know quite a remarkable story, and of course there there are amazing stories about reading circles around capital all over all over the world, uh, and um, I think people should still engage in capital uh, in that kind of uh, human way and 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 in, in, in that way of 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 uh, helping to. Uh, and enlighten ourselves about the conditions that surround our existence, even though, of course, uh, capitalism has um, has developed uh, a great deal since then. Uh, Marx could never have probably imagined the ways in which global capitalism functions today. Nevertheless, uh, the, 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 the basic theory of the system and the exploitation at the core of the system is um, explained uh, in capital in a, a much better way than anywhere else. I um, was introduced to reading this in college and I remember, I mean, it was really transformative to my way of thinking. It was also extremely difficult. And all of my professors sort of just said, you just have to get through it. So I'm very impressed that someone learned to read by, <laughs> by this book. We start off sort of with a big question that I think is maybe impossible <laughs> because of how long these volumes are. But can you summarize what what is this series of books about? Um, how would you summarize Marx and Engels, Capital. It's, it's, you can't summarize Capital. Let me put it that way. It's, re, it's really not the kind of text that lends itself to summary. But I guess I would say that Capital helps us to understand uh, the nature of our worlds, uh, what surrounds us, uh, that which we absolutely take for granted. Uh, uh, the world of commodities. Uh, capitalism itself is all about commodity relations. And if we don't realize that, we're still a part of those relations. Uh, um, and volume uh, one um, addresses uh, the contradictions in the capitalist mode of production. Uh, I mean, it's so interesting uh, because uh, it begins with a sentence uh, uh, which evokes uh, the wealth of societies uh, and the capitalist mode of production, which uh, presents itself as an immense accumulation of commodities. Uh, and so, therefore, uh, Marx argues that we have to begin our investigation of capitalism by looking at the commodity. Uh, uh, what is the analysis of the commodity? Uh, 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 what is the nature of the commodity? Uh, and, you know, perhaps we can, um, well, I'll say something about that later, but because you've asked me to do the impossible, that is to say, <laughs> summarize uh, 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 the 
the text. Uh, I'll say that volume one helps us to understand all of the contradictions in the capitalist mode of production. Uh, then volume two uh, focuses on the circulation of capital and buying and selling commodities, uh, including this very bizarre commodity, which is called uh, labor power, uh, which I'm sure we'll get to uh, later. And then um, volume three helps us to begin to understand surplus value and how profit uh, is uh, uh, created. Uh, and mm -hmm. I, um, I think I, I pointed out that there's a fourth volume that's called Theories of Surplus Value. Uh, that, so uh, let me just leave it at that. Uh, um, and I, um, uh, many people are reluctant to begin reading Capital because they think it's just all about political economy. And if you're not a, if you're not a, an economist or someone interested in political economy, it must be rather boring. Uh, but let's remember that it is a critique. And this notion of critique comes out of the tradition of German idealism. Uh, uh, Kant, for example, wrote uh, uh, three critiques, uh, uh, the critique of pure reason, the critique of practical reason, and the critique of judgment. Uh, uh, Feuerbach wrote critiques. So this is the philosophical tradition Marx was schooled in. Um, so he was interested not so much in describing political economy, but engaging in a critique of the existing uh, 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 theories of political economy. And, and in order to develop this critique, he draws upon history and literature and philosophy uh, so, that, so that capital really is an interdisciplinary text. And I think that's so important for people today who are interested in interdisciplinary fields, who study um, feminist studies or black studies or cultural studies uh, or critical prison studies. Uh, that, uh, you know, Marx's capital is one of the first great interdisciplinary works. Uh, uh, and that is what I love about it. I, I, I love the fact that it is impossible to imagine without the literature that he evokes, without the philosophical context, without attention to uh, a history. And my favorite part of, of uh, the text comes early on. As a matter of fact, it's in um, uh, chapter one of volume one and section four of chapter one of volume one. And it's called The Fetishism of Commodities and the Secret uh, Thereof. Uh, and I think that even if people um, can't uh, commit to reading the entire uh, volume, that this chapter would be really in, 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 in insightful uh, uh, because he begins to uh, point to the ways in which ideology uh, affects our capacity to understand the world. And at a time when we are in this country are, are asking ourselves, how is it that so many people uh, uh, fail to recognize the dangers of white supremacy? You know, 
when so many people not only entertain racist ideas, but assume that that is the way everyone is supposed to think. Reading Marx can help to shed light on that. And so he says that a commodity is a mysterious thing because in, in, in the commodity you see um, the social character of human labor, but it appears as an objective character. Um, and uh, the, the ways in which he encourages us to understand that what we assume are objects that are valuable only in relation to what they cost, uh, by urging us to think about uh, the fact that these are products of human labor and that as a matter of fact, uh, uh, they, um, they help to define human relations. Uh, so that um, when, I'm, when, when I'm sitting here at uh, this computer um, talking to you, I should think of the computer not not uh, as something that cost a thousand dollars or whatever, but rather as something that was produced by other human beings, uh, and it 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 mediates my relation to the the other uh, people, the women, the men, uh, the uh, non-binary people who engaged in in the labor that helped to produce this object, which allows me to communicate with you. Um, and so uh, he's encouraging us to think more deeply about the meaning of our relations uh, 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 with uh, people today we can say all over uh, the planet and not to fall prey to a fetishistic relationship with things that can only be measured in, in, in this fetishistic framework uh, in relation to uh, the exchange value or in relation to what what they 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 cost uh, and so i'll I'll stop there. <laughs> you know, Angela, I'm really glad that I got a minor in philosophy because i I think I understood the Kant the Kant reference. Um, <laughs> and so I'm like, good, that, that minor in philosophy came in handy right now. Um, and and you know, I really want to get even more to the root of capitalism. How did capitalism get created in the first place? Well, capitalism is a, a socio-economic order that historically evolved from previous economic systems. Uh, um, and one of the major contributions of uh, Marx and Engels' analysis of capitalism is that it is a product of history. It's not um, a system uh, that is permanent, uh, and, and if, if capitalism came into being historically, if capitalism came into being through history, then it could also uh, um, be replaced by something else through history. It could also exit uh, history. Um, so um, Marx argues that capitalism evolved uh, from previous economic systems, feudalism, uh, for example, which preceded uh, capitalism. Well, we can talk at greater length about that. Slavery, of course. And I, I don't think it's, uh, it's helpful to think of this as a linear 
development uh, because there are still places on on this earth uh, that are very much influenced by feudal relations. uh, And of course, uh, slavery uh, still exists. But historically, capitalism was the kind of economic system that was favored by the bourgeoisie. And the bourgeoisie created revolutions in Europe and in the Americas, uh, the French Revolution, of course, in 1789, and the American Revolution um, some years earlier, 13 years earlier in 1776. So, So we usually think of these revolutions as ushering in political systems of democracy, um, but they were also representing the bourgeoisie's economic interests and and in an economic system that would allow them to control the processes of economic uh, production. Um, The members of the bourgeoisie, they wanted freedom, they wanted equality, they wanted justice, but they were talking about the middle classes, the bourgeoisie. They were not talking about poor people and the working classes. they were contesting um, the um, aristocracy. They were contesting the political rule of the aristocracy, and they wanted equality for themselves. Uh, but it's so important to point out that, they, that this did not include uh, workers. This did not include uh, uh, um, people who had been enslaved. Uh, this is why... In the U.S., we have a constitution, a so-called democratic constitution, uh, uh, that asserts that all men are equal. Um, we, we observe the gender bias uh, already, uh, but uh, it's important to point out that uh, they weren't even talking about all men, um, um, because, of course, they weren't talking about enslaved men. Uh, but they weren't even talking about poor men. They weren't even talking about men without property. Uh, so that, that this universalism is a class-biased uh, universalism. Uh, and, um, uh, yeah, uh, capitalism is um, a product, uh, and, and, and I think it's so important to recognize that it emerges uh, with this particular form of democracy. It's, it's a product, it's related to, and is a product of the bourgeoisie's desire for economic and political power. Power, as I understand it, right, is, is a relationship, right? And I think that's something that you've been speaking to and bringing up is that Marx and, and people who study capitalism are, are showing that it's not this static thing. It's not money and the free market and the stock market, right? That it's actually a like an order of relations. Um, and that it seems like that that's sort of drawn or defined through commodities. And, and these are things I'm saying them and I'm grasping at, try, make, at trying to understand what this all means. But it seems to me that um, there's... Uh, it, th- this point of like it was it was so that the bourgeoisie could have power and maintain that power 
um, that, and it, it wasn't centering poor people, but it required that there exist poor people, right, or, or slaves, um, if I'm hearing this right. And it seems that exploitation is built into the system. It is a part of its design that, again, it's not a static thing, but it is a process of inequality um, and power over. Is that true? Uh, and, and, and how is capitalism inherently exploitative? Uh, does, yeah, does that question hopefully uh, yeah, that makes sense? Yeah, it does. <laughs> and 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 it's 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 so interesting that um, uh, many people consider the notion of exploitation as um, as a moral category, um, as a category of judgment, uh, and you might argue that capital um, uh, examines uh, the nature of exploitation uh, that can be quantified and 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 examined uh, within a, um, a rational uh, framework uh, so that uh, um, the rate of exploitation is uh, you know what is you know one of the most important um, um, elements of capital uh, that uh, built into the very system of of capitalism is a necessary uh, uh, need for exploitation. Um, exploitation generates profit. Uh, profit is at the center of capitalism. Without, without exploitation, there can be no profit. Uh, and uh, much of uh, uh, what we read about in capital helps us to understand not only the nature of that exploitation, but the hidden character of it, uh, uh, the fact that uh, it is assumed simply to be the normal operational uh, quality of, of, of capitalism and that nothing is wrong with it. And that is not, as a matter of fact, it is not exploitation. Uh, capitalism pivots around the production of profit. Profit is only possible when the capitalist or the owner of capital is able to hire workers who can produce not only the value of their own labor, and I'm not using the um, technically accurate terms here because I should be saying labor time instead of labor, uh, uh, but they can also produce more. They can produce surplus value. Um, um, and as it turns out, the owners of capital, precisely because they have resources from the get, at the very outset, they're able to buy labor power for much less than what, that, what it costs to reproduce that labor power. And this is actually um, the, 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 the formula of exploitation. This is the nature of exploitation that secret um, uh, uh, aspect of the contract between the worker uh, and the um, capitalist. The worker uh, is told that she is selling her labor to the capitalist, and the capitalist agrees to buy that labor, mm -hmm. say mm -hmm. for, um, well, we're talking about $15 an hour now, the you know minimum wage, for $15 mm -hmm. an mm -hmm. hour. Yeah. <laughs> but in actuality, the worker produces, say, twice the value in the course of uh, uh, the hour. 
So the worker produces the equivalent of $30 in that hour. The $15 that is the um, um, that remains that is that is not a part of the cost of reproducing uh, labor power. That is to say, you know what I I need a house, I need food, I need uh, so forth and so on in order to be able to get up and come back to work uh, uh, the next day, uh, and that's really only what the, the capital is on, is only prepared to pay me for what it cost me to stay alive and to come back to work. Uh, And anything beyond that um, is surplus value, but it is also about, uh, uh, that is uh, the source of profit. Uh, And that is why exploitation is measurable. Uh, uh, It's it's a central aspect of the critique of capitalist political economy. Yeah, you have this quote from 2017 that I wrote down explaining uh, how the capitalist system works, where you say the workers get paid enough to keep themselves alive in order to go to work. And I thought that that was a very like succinct way of explaining how this system works. Um, you mentioned, you brought up surplus value, and I just have a really quick question. Is that the same as abstract labor, or is that different? Um, well, you know, surplus value is really complicated, um, but um, as as I, as I told you, there's an entire three volume, fourth volume that addresses <laughs> surplus value. Uh, so, um, you know, surplus value um, uh, is possible because of uh, the value of labor time, and. Um, you know, as Marx pointed out in that section on the fetishism of, of, of commodities, the commodity is a bizarre thing. Uh, and especially the commodity that the worker sells. Um, and that commodity is called labor time. It's, it's not so much concrete labor, uh, uh, because that concrete labor produces use value, and it it would have to take into consideration all kinds of things that go into the whole process of 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 of, uh, of work. But Marx asks, well, what about labor can be rendered abstract? What can be what is what can be calculated? Uh, and that element is time, labor time. And so not what he called the, the socially necessary average labor time that is necessary to uh, produce a commodity becomes the exchange value of that uh, uh, commodity. And um, so um, if, you know, for example, it costs me... Um, I don't know, um, um, $500 a week, I'm just pulling that out, uh, to keep myself alive and to have a place to live and to buy my food. And and, and, and there, there was also a gender element uh, there because it was assumed that the worker was male and, 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 and calculated into the value of uh, the worker's labor time was the... Um, um, the family. And then, of course, there's the whole realm 
that doesn't make it into capital. And this is why feminists uh, have been critical of the way in which uh, capital is written because it excludes reproductive labor. It excludes all of the work that happens outside of the capitalist system per se that makes it possible for workers to go to work. Uh, and, and, and that, of course, is the, the, the realm that we uh, usually think of as relegated uh, to uh, women. Um, but abstract labor, uh, which can be calculated in terms of time, is what is susceptible to becoming a commodity. Um, because a commodity, the value of a commodity is, is, um, is measured in the process of exchange. Uh, so, you know, what is the exchange value of um, something to do with labor? And that would be labor time, uh, labor power. That would be labor power. And that can be calculated in terms of the time it takes to um, reproduce this labor uh, power. Uh, so um, instead of labor as being a commodity, we say the capacity to labor is a commodity. The capacity to work, that is the meaning of labor power. And labor power can be um, uh, understood within the context of uh, uh, the commodity uh, by virtue of the amount of time it takes to guarantee the reproduction of this capacity to work. Uh, I think that um, uh, an important way of thinking about surplus value is um, the value beyond that which is necessary to reproduce labor power. So that, you know, for example, as, as a worker, as I was saying before, if, if, if I work um, eight hours and I produce uh, the, the, the value of, um, say, um, $100, uh, uh, and it only cost me $50 to reproduce my capacity to work, then there's a $50 surplus value there. So I'm, what it means is that I am producing twice as much as what I actually receive, but because, and, and this is the trick, this is the trick this, that is at the core of exploitation uh, within the capitalist system and that uh, uh, generally remains unrecognized. That trick uh, pivots around the distinction between labor and labor power. Uh, the, the worker is told that she is being paid for her labor, for her work, but actually she is only being paid for her capacity to work, for her labor power. And the difference between that is the surplus. Does that make sense? Got it. That makes total sense. And the surplus is profit? Yeah, the surplus value the is, is the more than source that? of profit. Okay. And this is precisely why capitalism is inherently exploitative. It has mm -hmm. to uh, pivot around uh, the, a failure to acknowledge this distinction between 
um, uh, labor, power, and labor. Mm-hmm. Because if the worker were being paid for her labor, she would get everything that she produces. And so how is it that the capitalist can claim something that somebody else actually produces? That's sort of my question right now is, is I think it's significant that when you started describing this book, you talked about how um, this emerges from a specific history. But yet just like how how is that possible and perpetual that we have this system where folks are having to go to work to pay to be able to live. It seems that there, there must be a system of or like a, a something built into the design that takes away people's ability to meet their own needs um, and that that is also a part of capitalism. Does he talk about that? Like there's just there must be this sort of initial I, I don't know if this is what primitive accumulation is, but there's always a moment where people are your ability to subsist is taken away through colonialism, rent, taxes, slavery, right? Um, and that is all, that is as much capitalism as like the stock market. Is that fair? Or what is he? What else can you say about that? No, I think I think that's absolutely right, uh, and it's 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 important to uh, consider that um, capitalism wouldn't work if it w- were not for the fact that there are people who own nothing else but their capacity to work, which means that they have to be deprived of everything else. And there are historical examples of this. In England, for example, there were the enclosures, where the enclosures of public land that everybody had access to, they could grow their food there, they could build their houses and so forth. Uh, But once um, those enclosures happen, and interestingly, it was uh, in order to provide grazing uh, for um, sheep so that wool could be produced, which was one of the first, uh, you know, major capitalist uh, commodities. So the the people had to be um, robbed of everything but their capacity to work. So that is the only thing workers have left to sell. Uh, whereas the, 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 the capitalists, that is the only commodity that workers are in possession of, their own capacity to work. Uh, and then the capitalists, uh, you know, have, uh, have everything else, uh, including uh, the uh, capital that they have acquired uh, as a result of violence and colonialism and racism and slavery. So yeah, capitalism presumes uh, that there is this um, uh, moment of violence, this moment of theft, uh, this 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 uh, absolute uh, 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 moment of um, of of acquiring uh, that which then distinguishes the capitalist, you know, from uh, the the worker who has been deprived of everything but the capacity to work. So, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, Marx uh, uh, talks about the ways in which workers are free. Uh, And they're, they're, they're free not only in the sense that they are free to sell the only thing they own, which is their capacity to work, but they are free in the sense that they have been freed of the um, means of, of, of sustaining themselves. 
uh, they have they 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 they're free in this negative sense as well as free in the positive sense of being able to sell their capacity to work. And and that it seems that the, your capacity to labor is of course racialized. It's affected by gender ability. Where who, what who is seen as being able to work and and what we can. The most that we can exploit of those, right? We've seen from the difference between like slavery, right, and like minimum wage. And so I, I, I'm transitioning a little bit, but you know, we run into a lot of folks in this work that talk about how we need to focus on building a unified class movement, and that we have to leave behind or set aside race and gender. But I know you've written whole books about how those things go together. And so can you speak a little bit about how a position of anti-capitalism means that we have to build around more than just class, but also include race and gender in our praxis and our analysis? You know, there's a tendency to assume uh, that um, universal uh, terms uh, require sameness. and, 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 and therefore, our ways of thinking about uh, um, um, justice and freedom and equality are, um, are really marred by that assumption uh, that, uh, that when we say that everyone is equal, we are assuming that they're the same. Uh, and, and that sameness gets congealed in in a racist context. Uh, uh, so I think it's really important to point out that early on, the very definition of the universality of humanness was racialized. And so that only some people were considered to be covered by the category human. Uh, therefore, all men are created equal. Uh, what was meant there was all affluent white men are created uh, equal. I think it helps us uh, to understand uh, why it is that uh, the U.S. can has proclaimed itself to be a democracy for so long, and at the same time, uh, there was colonialism. At the same time, indigenous people were subject to genocide. At the same time, there was slavery of people of African descent. Um, and all of this is um, related to ideology. And, and I think one of the real values of, of Marx and Engels' work is uh, its insistence on examining the impact of ideology. How is it that we can um, uh, engage in, 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 in this kind of um, thinking uh, uh, that so clearly excludes vast numbers of people, but we still say that we're talking about all people in the universe, all people on the earth. Uh, um, this is what I like to call the tyranny of the universal. Uh, and I find um, Marx and Engels' work helpful precisely because of the insistence on contradiction. Uh, and of course, uh, Monica, if you, uh, if you are um, you know, thinking about philosophy, uh, you, know, you know about Hegel and the insistence on contradiction as one of the main motor forces of history. Uh, you know, it's, I, I'm thinking a lot about all of the conditions that under capitalism that Marx 
basically predicted in, in, in the book, right? He, he foresaw, you know, the globalization of capitalism. Uh, he, he saw the, uh, you know, these he calls imaginary appetites, right? For which he coined as a saying for buying things that we don't need, right? Which we see all the time now. Um, he also saw the, the crisis prone nature of capitalism, monopolies and like so much more. So what, what did Marx, in your opinion, miss in his analysis of capital? Well, of course, he missed a lot of things. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we can't assume uh, that someone who published a book in the 1860s uh, would be capable of predicting, uh, you know, more than a, a century uh, of, div- of, of new developments. Uh, but at the same time, capitalism still exists. And um, I, I, I'm asked often if I think m- reading Marx is helpful. And, and I say that as long as, capital, as long as capitalism continues to exist, reading Marx will be helpful to us. Uh, uh, but of course, we can't expect it to be a Bible. We can't expect uh, the, 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 the text to shed light on absolutely every issue uh, that uh, we're interested in. And I, 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 I think that, um, you know, for example, uh, uh, the work that uh, Rosa Luxemburg did in her book, Accumulation of Capital, uh, uh, demonstrates how capitalism um, is so predatory that it has to continually expand its uh, operations in order to um, ab- um, abuse cheap labor, in order to get new uh, markets. Uh, and, and she also wrote about the military machinery that was necessary in order to uh, facilitate the globalization of capital. And of course, um, Rosa Luxemburg published her book in 1913, uh, uh, and, and, and she was really prescient in terms of, uh, of where we are today. But of course, Marx and Engels also uh, recognize the international you know, character of capital. And this is why they argue that only an international movement uh, would overturn capitalism. That's why internationalism is at the very core of resistance uh, to capital, the international working class. Uh, uh, the 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 anthem of the uh, working class is the international right uh, workers of the world unite. Uh, uh, as a matter of fact, that is how he concluded the Communist Manifesto. Uh, um, but I think that um, that that some of the things that that can be really um, and that are, that continue to be insightful for me are, uh, and I'm going back uh, to uh, what he did uh, write about rather than what he didn't write about. Uh, uh, but the, 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 the struggle around the, the workday, the number of hours, uh, and I think it's so important to point out uh, that uh, the struggle of the of, of working classes has 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 been around the number of hours in the day uh, people were expected to work, uh, and somehow it's so bizarre that 
You know, there was a struggle for a 15-hour day. There was a struggle for a 12-hour day. There was a struggle for a 10-hour day. And then there was a struggle for an 8-hour day. And somehow we've become fixated on this 8-hour day. And no one is challenging of the fact that that struggle should continue. Because according to Marx, this was... um, well, it's a bit complicated, uh, but this was the, 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 the major uh, um, focus of the, cl- the struggles of the working class, the struggle for leisure time, the struggle for time that I don't have to sell to the capitalists. Uh, um, and um, I'm actually... <laughs> going back a little bit, uh, because I want to point out that in the, the, the earlier writings, um, Marx had believed that it was possible for everyone to have fulfilling work, that, uh, and, 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 and that we would be able to, to express ourselves in an unalienated way through our work, that work, um, so to speak, would become art, that our relationship to work would be that of the artist's relationship to what uh, uh, she or he or they produce. Uh, but then later he came to realize that there were certain forms of necessary labor that uh, uh, could never be fulfilling. Um, and I, I remember uh, uh, Herbert Marcuse used to talk about uh, taking out the garbage or do being a garbage uh, person uh, that that probably would never turn into a fulfilling uh, vocation. Uh, And so therefore, uh, the shift was to um, demand more time within which I can uh, uh, try to engage in uh, creative and fulfilling activities. So that is the reason why the struggle around the number of hours one works in the day has been so central. Uh, but again, as I said before, uh, uh, we got stuck at eight hours. By now, we should be at four hours, uh, really. <laughs> no hours, no work hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Four-day week. Yeah, but at least, I mean, now in 2021, there should be a four-hour work day. Absolutely. And and in France, they actually tried to begin to uh, decrease the number of uh, hours or or four-day work week as opposed to a five-day work week. Uh, uh, But but I think that's still important because it's it's about the struggle uh, to create... um, to produce creativity and to produce uh, 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 ways in which people can fulfill themselves. Uh, uh, now, um, yeah, so that he did write about imperialism. Of course, uh, uh, as I said, Rosa Luxembourg really centers imperialism as being at the very core of capitalism. And I think it's important for us to recognize that in uh, the 21st century, uh, precisely because we have seen the deindustrialization of the economy, and we've seen the, the rise of neoliberalism and, 
and 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 the dismantling of all of the the kinds of um, um, agencies and institutions that are designed to help people, and as a consequence, we have the rise of a prison industrial complex, uh, which is more a product of global capitalism than of anything else. Global capitalism, global racial capitalism. Uh, this is uh, 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 a moment in the analysis when we really have to recognize the role that racism plays uh, in the uh, perpetuation of capitalism. I often hear, you know, capitalism as just being referred to as like amoral or, or not not immoral, right? But just incapable of or lacking the capacity for morality, um, and, and and so to me that means that moral reforms would ultimately fall short in ending the exploitation of capitalism. And it, so it makes me think of the phrase that's often said in our circles around how there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. We were wondering if you could share your thoughts on this and like why, you know, black capitalism or, or green capitalism might not work for us in our struggle against ending the exploitation of capitalism. I, I, I mean, I think it's, I think it's important because uh, it, um, also helps us to understand the racial capitalism. And the people who would most benefit from this would be people of color. Uh, uh, but there's, there are ways to engage reforms uh, that actually help the revolutionary process uh, as opposed to serving as a break on the revolutionary process. Uh, so that, you know, I like, I, I, I like to think about uh, reformist reforms and non-reformist reforms uh, 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 that that help us to you know understand economic uh, progress in a revolutionary context, but that also help us understand prison abolition and how we how how we develop the strategies that will ultimately lead to the abolition of prisons, not by saying no reforms are necessary. But by by arguing that 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 there are reforms that really help human beings, and that not only help human beings but give us a sense of our power, so that if we can achieve the twenty dollar minimum wage, then that emboldens us uh, to move further, and that helps us to explain. The, the, the fact that the system itself needs to be dismantled. And, and to me, this is, a, this is a, a feminist element that actually benefits from uh, Marx's uh, uh, notion of the importance of contradiction, uh, that we don't simply uh, look at a phenomenon that appears to be contradictory and get rid of the contradiction so that it stands by itself, but rather we use the contradictions in, in productive ways, in generative ways. Uh, and to me, it seems that uh, uh, that is um, one of the ways in which we can uh, you know, talk about uh, uh, minimum wage increases. Black capitalism is another question, uh, because I think that what we generally think of as black capitalism is not capitalism, first of all. Uh, you know, uh, uh, the, uh, people are talking about the Tulsa uh, uh, riots and, and the Black Wall Street uh, in Greenwood. 
those were just black businesses uh, that were not engaged in the process of capitalist exploitation. So I think it's really important for us to uh, distinguish between uh, the nature of capitalism, capitalist corporations, capitalist enterprises, and and small businesses that every community needs in order to uh, survive. And then about buying green, I think I think you're right that it's not going to get rid of uh, climate uh, injustice. It's not going to get rid of the poisoning of, of, of the planet, but it help, It may help to draw individuals into the struggle uh, uh, by pointing out that uh, yes, one can um, stop consuming meat because of the ways in which it it gets uh, 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 produced within the industrial capitalist industrial process, uh, and because of the pain that it brings to animals and so forth and so on, one can engage in that kind of um, moral action, uh, but recognize at the same time that it is relatively meaningless if one does not also do the organizing work that is going to create the kinds of movements uh, that will help us to bring about systemic change, revolutionary change. You ended up answering a lot of the questions that I had next um, and speaking specifically to, you know, Monica and I, I frame our work as, as abolitionist organizing and uh, there's many tools for us to develop a strategy where that recognize that abolition is not necessarily a blueprint that can just be built everywhere and hey we've abolished the thing and now we're all free but it's rather um, a horizon right or a framework that we that helps guide our work forward and and I'm hearing that yeah that is that is the work of of, of anti capitalism as well I'm thinking of the critical resistance reformist reforms versus abolitionist reform sort of rubric that was created that's really useful and so I think you've started to speak to some of the examples of what this movement might look like and some of the and and and, and that when we are developing strategies and making decisions around campaigns, we want to think about how does this embolden our movements? How does this change the conditions to make future fights more possible and, and uh, that aren't possible now? But is there a blueprint? Is there a... A, uh, is there something that's specific? You know, I, when I think of Marx, I think communism. I don't fully know what that means. I feel like I have a lot of miseducation around it. Um, but it does feel different to me than abolition, where I, 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 the folks that identify strongly with Marx seem to have a very clear vision. <laughs> um, and I'm not. I'm curious what you think about that or have to say about, is there a blueprint? Is it communism? Does it have a name yet? Does that not matter? And that it's enough that we have... A North Star um, and contradictions to work within. Uh, well, I don't think there's a blueprint, um, and you know, Marx himself constantly pointed pointed out that uh, uh, that that what he was trying to encourage was a critical relationship to existing uh, economic, social, political realities that would help people rise up and engage in revolutionary struggle. Uh, um, for a different kind of order. Um, and of course, the, 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 the different kind of order is described in broad strokes. Uh, it's non-exploitative. Uh, uh, it, uh, it's based on the fact that um, any society should engage in the process of satisfying the needs of its members. Uh, and um, 
and 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 so you know I think that we can we can look for inspiration. We can look at the Cuban Revolution for inspiration. We can recognize, for example, that uh, uh, that in Cuba there is this amazing healthcare system, and that nobody has to ever think about healthcare as a commodity. It's not something that has to be bought and sold. It's something that's available to people by virtue of the fact that they need it. Uh, and so I think we can talk about healthcare. We can talk about the fact that, that it is horrendous that education has been so commoditized that we only think of it in terms of loans and money and so forth. Not, and, 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 and we want a society in which education is um, absolutely accessible and free and available to everyone, where housing should not consume uh, generally at, at least half or more of the wages that people uh, make. So I think we can say these kinds of things, and this is important for abolitionists, uh, uh, because these, these are precisely the conditions that uh, would help to create a world that no longer needs prisons. Uh, and, 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 and particularly when one recognizes that what we call mass incarceration is a product of global capitalism. It's a product of all of the changes that have happened uh, as a result of shifts in capitalism. Uh, so we need, we need a world that is not, that does not revolve around a profit uh, for the few and the accumulation of the vast wealth of the planet into the hands of a very few people. Uh, uh, now, in terms of exactly how that would look, uh, that's changing as we struggle, because as we struggle, we become aware of, of other aspects of capitalist society that we have neglected. Uh, you know, for example, the importance of, of, of standing in solidarity with disabled people and the struggles that um, the disabled movement uh, has introduced us all to, uh, um, the struggles of um, the ideological struggles associated with the trans community. Uh, there is so much that we have learned in the last, say, two decades. Uh, and we can imagine that in the next two decades, there will be so much more that will help us to think about the kind of world that we want to inhabit in, in the future. I think it is a, it's an ongoing process. Uh, and um, as I, I quoted uh, uh, a freedom song in, in one of my books, freedom is indeed a constant struggle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm feeling very full um, and grateful. Um, I'm going to hand it over to Monica to ask you our final closing question of like a, your favorite passage. But before I do that, is there anything else that you wanted to say that you didn't oh, have space for? Oh, there's a lot. <laughs> 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 but I think we'll Part have two, to. Part two, if you we'll want have, to do it again, we'll okay. have to postpone that to another time. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Take it away, Monica. Thank you, though. Yeah, we're we're always down for a part two, part three, part four. <laughs> um, 
Well, Angela, it has been such a pleasure to chat with you today about this critical text. Um, I know I'm leaving this conversation feeling super hopeful, super energized, uh, equipped with more knowledge and, and more questions, which is always a sign that I'm, I'm actually processing this information. Um, and I know we could have talked for hours about all of the concepts and, and theories and capital, but we just really want to thank you for your time with us today. Um, we, we close out each episode with our guests reading a favorite quote or a passage from the book uh do you have one to close us out with the sphere of circulation or commodity exchange within whose boundaries the sale and purchase of labor power goes on is in fact a veritable eden of the innate rights of man it is the exclusive realm of freedom equality property and bentham and i really love the irony here in this passage uh, freedom because both buyer and seller of a commodity, let us say of labor power, are determined only by their free will. They contract as free persons who are equal before the law. Their contract is the final result in which their joint will finds a common legal expression. Equality, because each enters into relation with the other as with a simple owner of commodities, and they exchange equivalent for equivalent. Property, because each disposes only of what is his own. And Bentham, because each looks only to his own advantage. Of course, Jeremy Bentham is a reference here. The only force bringing them together and putting them in relation with each other is the selfishness, the gain and the private interest of each. And precisely for that reason, either in accordance with the pre-established harmony of things or under the auspices of an omniscient providence, they will all work together to their mutual advantage for the common will and in the common interest. Now, uh, one more paragraph, uh, because this allows you to understand the, the, the previous uh, paragraph. Uh, uh, when we leave this sphere of simple circulation or the exchange of commodities, which provides the free trader vulgaris uh, with his views, his concepts, and the standard by which he judges the society of capital and wage labor, a certain change takes place, or so it appears, in the physiognomy of the dramatist personae. He who was previously the money owner now strides out in front as a capitalist. The possessor of labor power follows as his worker. The one smirks self-importantly and is intent on business. The other is timid and holds back like someone who has brought his own hide to market and now has nothing else to expect but a tanning. And that is the nature of exploitation. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another episode of The Lit Review, a podcast where we interview people we love and respect about a book that has shaped their organizing work. We are your co-hosts, Monica Trinidad and Paige May, two Chicago-based abolitionists, cultural workers, and cat mamas who love nerding out on books and creating spark notes for our movements. Production this season is by Benji Russellberg. 
Intro music is by David Ellis with production by Ari Mahia and social media support from Alicia Camille. If you like this episode, give it a shout out on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. And if you like our podcast, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to help us widen our reach. Financial support for the production of this podcast season is thanks to the Field Foundation of Illinois and our amazing Patreon subscribers. Learn more about becoming a patron at patreon.com slash the lit review. Keep reading. Keep reading.